The Bob Murphy Show, episode 299. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. For this episode, I'm going to be going solo. I am going to run through three examples of an MMT view of things that I think is either literally false or at the very least is misleading. And that's kind of my uh, refrain with all the MMT contributions to our discourse, namely that they don't contribute much because they just serve to muddy the waters. All right. So some of these you've seen me address in bits and pieces here and there, but I thought I have enough material together to give a a one-shot summary of my reaction to the standard MMT talking points. Okay, so again, we're going to go through three of these. So first example, Stephanie Kelton a while ago, uh, and I will try to dig up the... So I have the screenshots for two of these, like for number two and three. This first one that I'm going to go over right now, I think I can dig it up, but... I might not be able to because it was kind of, you know, it was several months ago, so it might be hard for me to find. But in any event, uh, the spirit of what I'm saying is definitely accurate. She showed a chart of um, federal government deficit or surpluses, and then it had a corresponding mirror image of the private sector deficits or surpluses. And she said something like, uh, you know, people worry about the debt, but the federal government's red ink is equal to our black ink, something like that. All right. And so the let me first just explain what she's trying to say, and then I'll get into what the problems are with it. Okay. So this is a standard MMT talking point, and you can do it somewhat rigorously if you really want to get into the weeds with it. Okay, so it's it's not merely a verbal tautology. Like there there are a bunch of what they're called sectoral balances. You can write out these equations that once you define what the terms mean, that yes, they're true statements and you can go through. And so um, you can write things like saying, look, if you want the domestic private sector to accumulate net financial assets, then it has to be the case that either the domestic public sector, you know, meaning the government, runs a budget deficit and or the uh, rest of the world. So, you know, instead of rather instead of domestic, the international sector runs a deficit, meaning that, you know, you have a trade surplus. OK, so just to kind of go through intuitively, what does that mean? So by net financial assets, first of all, what does that mean? It means um, the, the way people define these terms, if you're just looking at the domestic private sector on its own, you just draw a line around it. So you're excluding the government and you're excluding foreign trade. Then they're going to say net financial assets have to sum to zero, no matter what. So, you know, real easy to see as I'll run through the logic of it. It's like, oh, if... What if, uh, you know, the household of, of the Smiths, you know, the Smith household, what if they scrimp and save and uh, this last month they had a, they had a net savings of $2,000 that they used to invest in a bond that somebody down the street issued? All right. You could call it a loan. That's easier because you don't normally think of households as issuing bonds. All right. So they lent $2,000 to the family down the street. So the Smith household definitely had an increase in two, of $2,000 worth of net financial assets, given the rest of the story that I said there, okay? 
But of course, the household down the street had a net deficit of two thousand dollars in financial assets, right? That their their um, outstanding debt went up by two thousand dollars, whereas the Smith household as financial assets went up by two thousand. Okay, so looking at the community as a whole, it adds to zero in terms of financial assets. Okay, um, you could say. You might say, well, okay, but what about stock? All right, and so in here, by the way, I quibble with this. I'm not even sure I agree with the approach that a lot of economists and uh, you know mathematical finance people use with this, but it is, I've been going back and forth with a guy on email over the years on this, and he's shown me that this isn't like some quirky position Paul Krugman has taken. Like this is pretty standard in the textbook. So I'm acknowledging here, I have a bit of an unorthodox view where I I'm not yet convinced that it's helpful to say net financial assets are always zero because, um, yes, obviously, any debt issued by any debt held by one party must be a liability to somebody else. I get that, but with equity, that seems to me to be different. The way they handle it in the literature, what they mean is, you know, if if you have a bunch of people who own stock in whatever GE. The way I'm looking at it, I'm saying, okay, yeah, those are those are financial assets, right? Shares of stock are clearly financial assets, but it's not the GE is in debt to them, right? Like on the on the um, you know on their books, it's it's liabilities and shareholder equity, right? And so, but the way economists when they say no, no, net financial assets sum to zero the way they handle that is no, the regular assets of like the assets held by GE, like it's factories and, you know, intellectual property and blah, blah, blah. Apologies to Stephen Kinsella. That stuff is all on the asset side. So the company owns those assets. And so it would be double counting. If you then also said that the shareholders of GE own the assets of their shares of stock at, you know, market prices, and you don't count that as a liability of the company GE to the shareholders. Because if you do that, then it's double count. All right. So I get it. All right. Fine. Fair enough. So th that's why they stress financial assets, right? So they're not. So big picture, you can use the definitions that way. And I'm not saying there's anything terribly wrong with that. Again, you got to watch out for double counting. Okay, fine. So using that approach, then the MMT people are trying to, or what they are saying is, okay, so see, given that that's how the accounting works and we've just shown to you and it's a standard result in uh you know financial economics textbooks and such that the domestic private sector you draw a line around it internally they cannot accumulate net financial assets if one uh, household or one company or whatever if they want to live below their means if they want to consume less than their income in order to accumulate and if they channel those savings not into tangible you know, farmland or things like that, but financial assets, you know, claims on other entities that owe them flows of money, either because that's literally what the contract says or because when some event happens in the future, the payment is due, it's, you know, in money, then, um, you know, since those always net to zero, that one party's asset necessarily is the mirror image of some other party's uh, liability, then... MMT claim goes, the only way the domestic private sector in the aggregate can ever get ahead, can ever accumulate net financial assets, is if some party external to it incurs net liabilities. And so you could imagine, you know, any particular country could do it if they're running trade surpluses, right? Because effectively what they're doing is exporting goods and services. Um, strictly speaking, it's, I think it's current account surpluses is what you would need um not just a which is anyway we're not gonna get in the weeds of that but i'm just making a note for purists out there that i think that's technically what you'd want needed for it to go through but um for the purposes of this simple analysis just think of it as a trade surplus so that not the, the domestic private sector you know they're shipping they're selling more stuff abroad than they're purchasing in terms of goods and services and so because of that, just with the money flows, if you're just thinking about it, that means they have now the ability to buy more financial assets from abroad than 
they uh, than vice versa. Okay, so they can, for example, buy shares of foreign stock or they can buy bonds issued by foreigners. And then, you know, if the foreigners use those funds to buy, you know, television sets or wheat or whatever, then when the dust settles, that's how the people in the first country can end up with a, a higher aggregate net financial asset standpoint or stock. Okay. So that makes sense. And then, but promise, oh, the private sector on the whole, you know, around the globe can't do that. But, and also if, if what they're doing is accumulating from foreigners, you know, you're worried about the stability of that. Okay. So then the fallback is the other possibility for the math to work. The accounting is if domestically the public sector keeps issuing more and more net debt that the private sector is accumulating. Okay, so hence, hey, the only way that the private sector, you know, you conservatives, you right-wingers, you want everybody to save and be responsible and cut back on their uh, ostentatious consumption and live below their means and blah, blah. Well, gee, mathematically, the only way they can... Uh, be in the black as if the public sector is in the red, right? That's the idea. Okay, so the problem with that is is extremely misleading. It makes it sound like we're saying the only way people in the private sector can save and get ahead is if the government runs a corresponding budget deficit, and that's not true. And again, I appeal to like Robinson Crusoe. That's the easiest way to get it. Robinson Crusoe lands on his tropical island somewhere. He's all by himself in the beginning. He can just live hand to mouth, just picking coconuts every day, living on the verge of starvation. You know, he's one illness away from dying, not because dying from the illness, but if he's too sick to go pick coconuts and he hasn't built up a stockpile, then he's going to starve. Or he can be resourceful, farsighted, and he can... Uh, live below his means. So he picks, whatever, 10 coconuts a day. And for a while, he just eats nine coconuts. So he has a 10% savings rate. And so he accumulates, you know, every day, one, he adds one more coconut to his stockpile. And by the way, even here, they can worry about, well, gee, wouldn't the coconuts go bad? I mean, he can rotate the inventory, right? So like when his, if, he, if he's eating nine a day, every day, he can actually eat the, you know, the ones he carried from the day before and then of the ones he newly picks that day have them all go into inventory. So at any given time, the coconuts in his inventory are no more than 24 hours old, in case you're worried about that detail. Okay, so he can do something like that and, you know, build up a nice little stockpile. Um, when I say no more than 24 hours old, I meant up until a point at which he has 10 and then obviously... If he builds up a stockpile of 21 coconuts or something, then obviously they're, they're more than 24 hours. But you get the idea. Okay, so he can do things like that. And then, of course, he can get more sophisticated. And once he's got a nice stockpile of coconuts to fend off you know, immediate starvation, he can then do things like start collecting branches and whatever in order to make a spear. So then he can go fishing and da-da-da-da-da, doing stuff like that. All right? And it's not that Robinson Crusoe is unable to live below his means and accumulate capital goods and raise his productivity of labor and his, ultimately his long-run standard of living. It's not like, oh, no, I could do all these things if only there was a government somewhere that would tax me but spend more on my behalf than it took for me in taxes to provide me with the means by which I could, in terms of accounting, start getting ahead, right? That's crazy. You're, you're doing something wrong if you end up there. So strictly speaking, um, you know, the MMT people don't come out and literally say, or at least I haven't seen them in some of the demonstrations, probably on online disputes, some of their people in the rank and file do say things that are just flat out false. But in terms of the accounting and if someone does it right, the sectoral balance approach, blah, 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 does not literally say, and this is why an economy cannot grow and accumulate more capital goods per capita and raise its standard of living that way, even absent technological innovation, uh, unless there's accompanying bu government budget deficits. They don't say that, but that's certainly what they lead you to believe. They make it look like 
you guys are all spinning your wheels in the private sector trying to take the far right's advice about be responsible, tighten your belts, live below your means. Well, you can't do that, duh. If the federal government's not running a budget deficit, right? They either literally say that in some points or certainly lead you to believe that. So I'm showing that can't be right. Robinson Crusoe is a counterexample. Now, what's funny is whenever I say stuff like this, a lot of MMT people are like, oh my gosh, here goes Murphy again talking about coconuts. Uh, hello, in the real world, we don't use coconuts for money. Like they actually say that to me, not getting that. No, the point of a counterexample is not to say this is realistic. It's to show something is wrong with your framework if I have this real simple counterexample. But in any event, that's the idea. So specifically, more generally, again, the flaw in their reasoning is the private sector, even if we're going to take the approach of saying net financial assets always sum to zero, there's a huge difference between net, uh, sorry, private sector A over here that just always consumes the full amount of its income and private sector B over here, where every year they only consume 75% of their income. Even if they have balanced trade and even if their respective governments run balanced budgets year in and year out, the the B the society B that I described over time, for, you know, for comparable labor skills and technological innovation, blah blah blah, their standard of living will rise relative to the first group because they have a higher savings rate. They will accumulate net financial goods. They will become more capitalistic. Their workers over time will have more tools and equipment to work with, and so their labor productivity will be enhanced. So yes, the net financial assets in both cases will stay the same, but there's more things, there are more types of assets than merely financial assets. And so again, the companies in society B start having more and more factories. They have more goods on the shelves. They have more forklifts driving around inside the warehouses. They have more 747s. They have more supercomputers cranking out you know, AI calculations, blah, blah, blah. They have all that stuff. And it's true if you look at the people who own the shares of stock in those companies and add up those numbers, then that exactly corresponds to when the accountants do the books for the companies on the right-hand side of the balance sheet, when it says liabilities and shareholder equity, the number for the shareholder equity in the aggregate equals adding up all the shareholder, blah, blah, blah. But still, on the left-hand side of the balance sheet, the assets listing, you know, the factories, the farmland, the da, 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 how many tractors, what's the current market price of the tractors, how much, you know, the coal mines we've discovered and blah, blah, blah. That stuff is all report, you know, that's on somebody's asset side of their, you know, whether it's a household or whether it's a corporation or whatever, somebody owns that stuff. And that doesn't just net to zero. Those are net assets. Okay. And so, and the society that lives below its means, even without government budget deficits and without running a trade surplus or a current account surplus, if you want to get fancy, they can certainly continue to accumulate in that sense and have their standard of living rise over time, vindicating the fuddy-duddy conservative right-winger wisdom that, hey, you know, it's good to, a penny saved is a penny earned, you know, that kind of stuff. All right, so there you go. Next example, Stephanie Kelton uh, recently tweeted out this imaginary dialogue so she says them, colon, right? So this is her talking to them. So first them's going to speak, then she, then them, and then she again. Them, colon, we have to deal with America's debt problem. Me. So you want to prevent holders of U.S. dollars from shifting those dollars from checking to savings accounts at the Fed? Them. I don't know what that means. Me. That's the problem. Okay, I'm going to read it to you again because you probably got lost unless you've seen it before. So again, this is an imaginary dialogue Stephanie Kelting is having with, you know, a standard American pundit who's worried about the debt problem. And Stephanie Kelton's going to roll up and, in her mind, make a true observation about what it means for America, by which she means um, the federal government, to have increasing amounts of debt. And, of course, her... Uh, the person she's discussing this with has no clue what she's talking about. And Stephanie Kelton just rolls her eyes. But again, here's the exact dialogue as she posted it on her Twitter account. Them. We have to deal with America's debt problem. Me. 
So you want to prevent holders of U.S. dollars from shifting those dollars from checking to savings accounts at the Fed? Them. I don't know what that means. Me. That's the problem. Okay, so what's going on here? Incidentally, if you uh, follow me on Twitter, I, I posted this. Like, I thought I knew something that was fundamentally wrong with this, but it's subtle. So I posted it on my Twitter account and said, hey, I'm wondering, do you guys see anything wrong with this? So lots of people had general you know, objections to MMT that they would have made with or without this particular tweet from Stephanie Kelton. Nobody to mind. One guy got, got close, but except for one guy, nobody was even in the same zip code as the kind of thing I was worried about. So I took this since I had been planning on doing a, uh, a GPT-4 episode anyway for the Infi podcast. I, I use this just, just as fodder for a conversation just to show how powerful GPT-4 is. So if you've seen that on Twitter or um, I, I wrote it up also for a Medium post. Um, so I'll link to that stuff, folks, if you want, if you're interested. It, long and short of it is I just posted this thing you know, Kelton's tweet and let GPT-4 rip. And I, when I say post, I don't even mean I highlighted the text. I mean, I just screenshotted it and posted the PNG file because uh, GPT-4 can look at images now. And I don't even mean just text. I mean, you can, I'm, I'm getting far afield. The uh, equity equality meme, if you've seen that one, where there's the three people trying to look at a baseball game and there's crates and they stack them in different ways to either let the little guy see over the fence or that kind of thing. GPT-4 had no trouble telling me what that was about and even brought up the term systemic inequality. Okay, so, and again, it's, I, posted in, I posted like a political cartoon, basically, and it understood, you know, it could interpret the images in the cartoon and understood the political relevance. All right, so don't get me wrong. GPT-4 is still stupid in many respects. <laughs> my, my 19-year-old son and I, literally last night, we're just feeding it. We were doing the, the, you know, the riddles where it's like you've got two chickens and a fox who are trying to get across the river and you can't have a chicken or a fox in the boat at the same time because the fox will eat the chicken. And so how do you do it? You know, it's, you send the, the two little ones across and then one brings the boat back and then the fox goes by himself. The other one brings the boat back and then the two go. It's that. Deal. And it was comical how badly GPT-4 was failing at that. Like it, it it would like violate the rule. You know what I mean? I'm not saying it couldn't come up with the answer, which is a true statement. I'm saying it would give what it purported was a solution that was violating the rules. You know, it had the fox and the chicken riding across. It had the boat coming across with nobody in it. It had somebody getting across the river, even though the boat was on the other side at the start of that step. You know, it was just doing it. And it was confidently telling us, yep, I did what you told me to. <laughs> we kept saying, no, you didn't. It's like, oh, I apologize. Here, let me fix it. And it would just repeat the same, you know, so it was... My point being, it's not going to take over the world next Thursday. There's still uh, a lot that GPT-4 has to fix. But in any event, what it was able to do was walk with me through an analysis of Kelton's tweet here um, in a very good fashion, such that um, it helped me think through the logic of it to prepare me to now tell you very quickly what the deal is. Okay, so first of all, let me just explain what is Kelton even talking about? What's her point? What, she, what does she think she's doing here with this zinger? So her deal is she's saying, look, at when the U.S. government, the, the Treasury, runs a budget deficit, what does that mean? It means it's issuing more bonds that people in the private sector are purchasing in order to augment its funds so that it can you know, complete all the spending it wants to do. And so Kelton's point is to say, you know, from the point of view of the federal government, or the treasury plus the Federal Reserve considered as a consolidated entity, which is a typical move that MMT people go to, if you think of them as just this consolidated entity, well, treasury bonds and, or I should say treasury securities to include bills, notes, and bonds, uh, are just one type of government liability denominated in U.S. dollars and currency is also a type of government liability, obviously denominated in dollars, right? So for, like on the Fed's books, this is, this is true. It's the, they're not doing any kind of subterfuge here. The Federal Reserve on its balance sheet 
on the liability side, currency and circulation is one of the liabilities, right? Like a $100 bill floating around in somebody's wallet that is on the Fed's books as a liability of $100. It's a Federal Reserve note. All right, it harkens back to the gold standard era where, you know, really it made sense to say, oh, people walking around with these Federal Reserve notes that if they turn them in, we are obligated to give a certain amount of gold. You can really see why, okay, so the, the quantity of notes outstanding that the Federal Reserve has issued are liabilities because they're like claim tickets on the gold we have in the vault. But even after they left the gold standard, closed the gold window completely in 71, Still, in terms of the accounting, that's how they keep it on the books. Okay. Um, and then uh, banks, so, you know, their own customers have checking account balances with the bank. So, like from Citibank's point of view or Bank of America, from their point of view, if, one, if Joe Smith, one of their customers, has $1,000 in his checking account with Citibank, then on Citibank's balance sheet, under its liabilities, one element of that is Joe Smith's $1,000 checking account balance with them, right? Because they, in a sense, owe him $1,000. And that's why his checking account with them is a liability from Citibank's point of view. So similarly, if Citibank holds reserves parked at the Fed, then those reserves, let's say it's a billion dollars in Citibank's account with the Fed, that billion dollars is Citibank's asset and it's the Federal Reserve's liability. Okay? And so what Kelton is saying is let's say the Treasury next uh, Monday morning runs a, a $10 billion deficit. Right, so it's it, it needs to come. It needs to borrow ten billion dollars to then go spend. So what does it do? It issues the treasury issues ten billion dollars in new bonds. People in the private sector write checks or you know run electronic transactions, wire funds or whatever, and so their checking account balances go down by ten billion dollars, and they pay that to the government. And then ultimately, as it funnels through the system, like let's say everybody happened to have been uh, banking at Citibank, then uh, let's say it was a, a billion, just to make the numbers more consistent with what I said before. All right, so all the people who buy a billion dollars worth of new, newly issued bonds, they write checks worth, so their checking account balances go down by a billion dollars collectively. So Citibank, its liabilities vis-a-vis -vis those particular customers goes down by a billion dollars. And you say, you say, oh, so does that mean Citibank now is up a billion? No, because um, it gets passed through and Citibank's reserves parked at the Fed go down by a billion dollars. All right, so Citibank is even on the whole deal, which makes sense. Like, you know, why should Citibank's position change just because some of its customers bought um, stuff from the Fed, right? Or, or from the Treasury, I should say. All right, and so strictly speaking, what, what happens is the Treasury's you know, if you want to think of it step by step, like I just showed you the outcome, but the step, the, the next step in the process, the, the second to last step is the Citibank sends a billion dollars to the U.S. Treasury. And so Kelton is thinking, oh, what happens is that from the Fed's point of view now, it would shift the reserves, you know, whatever, it, whatever Citibank's reserves with the Fed are gets reduced by a billion. And then the Treasury's account with the Fed gets credited a billion. Okay, but since the way MMTers think about it, the treasury just does whatever it wants. Like that's effectively like saying that billion dollars just gets absorbed back into the ether. Okay, so that's the idea. But now it's not. It's not that. Oh, so I guess the federal government, the treasury, are now ahead by a billion. 
Well, no, because I mean, the, the, uh, the Fed's liabilities just went down by a billion because the reserves of Citibank parked there went down by a billion. But now the Treasury's debt goes up by a billion, right? Because it's sold a billion dollars worth of new bonds. Okay. So big picture, the idea is, in Kelton's mind, when the public lends a billion dollars to the government, really all it is is changing the composition of the various balance sheets, and it's all a big wash that um, the public's checking accounts went down by a billion and effectively their savings accounts with the federal government slash central bank went up by a billion. And so, you know, what's, what's the big deal? You're just changing the composition of your dollar accounts held at the federal level. That's what she's saying. All right. Again, her exact wording was, so you want to prevent holders of U.S. dollars from shifting those dollars from checking to savings accounts at the Fed? Okay. So everyone, you know, I hope now you get a rough idea of where she's coming from, what she means by that. Okay. So this is just a prototypical, is prototypical the word I want? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> this is the epitome, let's say that, of what's wrong with MMT and why it is completely and utterly I would say useless, but it's worse than useless. It's misleading. It would, it's not that Kelton is contributing nothing to the conversation here. She is making the conversation worse. Because for one thing, she's confusing people. So th this isn't clarifying anything, right? Even within her own tweet, she says the person goes, I don't know what that means. And she says, that's the problem, right? So people are confused when she says this. And it's not like when you work through the confusion, then there's enlightenment on the other side. That's not what's going on here. There's, if anything, uh, being misled on the other side. There's more confusion. Okay, so specifically, so, I, so you know, I had a lot of people saying, oh, yeah, well, Kelton just thinks, oh, run the printing press. They'll fix it. You don't know about inflation. I mean, yes or no or whatever you want to say, but that's not the issue. That's completely irrelevant to this. What Kelton is doing here is she's trying to show the innocuousness, if that's a word, of government borrowing by just trying to like antiseptically describe the operation in mechanical terms such that it seems like how could that possibly hurt anything all you're doing is transforming the nature of the assets and liabilities in a way that doesn't seem like it should be that big of a difference okay you know why that doesn't seem like it's a big difference because she isn't including in that analysis the treasury then spending the money right Because if she included that step, the public would end up with not just, so she's focusing on the fact that, oh, when the public lends the billion dollars to the government and the government's indebtedness goes up by a billion, all that's really happened is the, the public has changed the billion dollars in its checking accounts into a billion dollars held in the form of treasury securities. And they're, they're both liabilities of the U.S. government. And so why are, you know, why would Glenn Beck care if the public is going to hold a billion dollars worth of government issued liabilities denominated in dollars? Why does Glenn Beck think it's fine for the public to hold a billion dollars in currency or in checking account balances at Citibank or whatever? But it's not fine for the public to hold a billion dollars worth of treasury securities. Why, why does Glenn Beck care about the form? W would Glenn Beck freak out if the, if the public decided to turn all their $100 bills in order to get five twenties each? Would that freak out the public? No, stupid. That's just you know different uh, denominations of, of the same aggregate amount of liabilities issued in the form of currency by the Fed. So what if the public decides, you know what? We don't want to hold so much of our federal liabilities in the form of cash or you know, currency or uh, checking account balances, let's instead transform it into the, mar the same market value worth of treasury securities. And gee, I don't see Glenn Beck free. If, somebody, if I turn in a dollar bill to get four quarters, I don't see Glenn Beck freaking out. Okay, that's what she's trying to do. That's the move she's making here. But if you just took it one more step to say, and then why did the government issue a billion dollars in new bonds? 
it's because it was getting ready to deficit spend on the billion. So the next step is the government, you know, the treasury in our example, if the treasury kept the billion in its account with the fed, then drains the account. And then those billion dollars end up in checking account balances of the public ultimately, which then end up back in banks, which then end up with the reserves that before were in the treasury's account with the fed now get transferred back into the reserve accounts of Citibank and Bank of America and whatever. So when the dust settles, the public has not only a billion dollars more in savings accounts at the Fed. By the way, that's wrong. They don't actually have savings accounts at the Fed. That's metaphorical. So again, even when the MMT people are trying to say how stupid everybody is, they say things that actually are not true. And they say, oh, you're just describing how the world works. No, you're not. You're making false statements about the world, but okay. That's a quibble. Even the spirit of what she's saying, when the public first lends the billion dollars to the treasury, and so they gain, the public gains a billion dollars now more of savings accounts at the, let's say, Fed slash treasury, is this considered as a consolidated entity. Okay. And then when the treasury deficit spends that, now that ends up back in the checking account balances of the public. Okay, so that's what's going on. And so if, she, if people said, hey, we have to deal with America's debt problem, and she said, oh, so you want to prevent the holders of U.S. dollars from acquiring you know, extra savings accounts at the Fed? And by the way, she does say stuff like that, right? I mean, that's kind of the first thing I went through, that to say, hey, when the government gets deeper into debt, that's just the private sector going up in its assets. But, okay. But the thing with the checking the savings account, that per se, the thing she's focusing on this tweet, there, that has nothing to do with the government being able to, you know, having a, a, be a sovereign currency issue or whatever. I could just as well make comparable statements about, uh, you know, a, a company. A company issues more bonds and its checking account balances go up before it spends the money. Or a teenager comes in and says, hey, mom and dad, um, uh, or, or let's say the mom and dad see, uh, see the, the mail come in for the kid. The kid's 17, and they see the, his credit card thing come in, and their nosy parents, they open it and look, and they fall on the floor because it said his credit card debt went from $100 last month to $10,100 this month. And the, you know they, they can't believe it. What did you do? And they rush into his room, and they say, is this right? Did you actually run up your debt by $10,000 in one month? And he said, yep. And they're, they're like just flipping out. And then he you know, opens up his closet and he takes out a shoebox and dumps it on the bed. And he has $10,000 in cash. And he says, yeah, I just, I, got, I did a bunch of cash advances. Okay. Probably they wouldn't let a 17 year old do that much, but go with this flow here, folks. Okay. And then he said, geez, I don't know why everyone's freaking out about, you know, running up credit card bills. All I have done is exchange, um, you know, I, I've, I've just taken on liabilities owed to uh, Visa in exchange for an accumulation of uh, assets held in the form of currency. Right? My, my net position hasn't changed. Let's, let's not worry about interest because, for one thing, Stephanie Kelton didn't either. Right? So what, geez, why is everyone, you know, I don't get what the stigma is against running up huge credit card debt. It's, it hasn't hurt my uh, bottom line. It's just kind of like an asset swap. All right. And so the parents, of course, would be relieved. And they would say, oh, phew, because we thought you spent that money. Okay. Thank goodness. Woof. Like, yeah, they, I mean, they might be worried about, geez, why are you, <laughs> we doing with all this cash and everything. And that's kind of risky. But still, you could imagine how incredibly relieved they would be that what he did when running up that $10,000 in extra credit card debt was just accumulate $10,000 in cash, as opposed to he went out and bought a bunch of stuff with it, you know, went to restaurants and went gambling and stuff to Atlantic City and has nothing to show for it. Okay, so likewise, again, what Stephanie Kelton has narrowly focused on here is the Treasury issuing a bunch of bonds in order to bulk up its checking account. And then that's where she stops the analysis and says, if we just look at that, really, 
the federal government slash treasury or sorry, the treasury slash federal reserve considered as a consolidated entity isn't really any worse off. And I say, right, but that's because you haven't included the spending yet. And there's nothing special about the federal reserve not being constrained by the gold standard there. That would also be true of a 17 year old getting cash advances with a credit card. Okay. When people worry about a debt problem, they mean when you've run up the debt and then spent it irresponsibly on things that now we don't have assets backing up. All right. So, which of course, it's not like in the real world, the people complaining about uncle Sam's debt are complaining about, you know, like there's, um, certain countries like they have sovereign wealth funds and things like that. Right. So if in some of them, if they issued like Norway and Alaska, they have all kinds of oil deposits that they, you know, they sell the off and they use the proceeds to build a fund and they give dividends to their citizens and whatever. If the people running that fund were to issue some bonds in order to whatever, you know, build a, a warehouse or whatever to store the drums of oil in or something, Nobody would call that a debt problem. Right? That's not what people mean when they talk about a debt problem. <sighs> All right. Now, finally, b before I move on, let me circle back to the first one. There was something I didn't... Let me just continue my... Everything I said was fine, but normally in that spiel, I explain one last thing. Let me not forget to do that because I, I kind of wanted, wanted this to be a standalone episode that had all my various thoughts. So going back to that first one, again, where you're using the sectoral balance approach, there's, so I, I walked you through how there's nothing magical about it. And I pointed out that there's something fishy because it leads you to believe that, oh, if, if the domestic private sector can't accumulate net financial assets defined in the way I explained that therefore they can't save and get ahead. And then I showed you that, yes, they can, because they can just save in terms of real assets. I mean, that's certainly true. And maybe that's the most important thing to point to make in response. But beyond that, let me just also point out, it's also misleading to say like, oh, so see the domestic private sector, um, you know, it can gain net financial assets through net exports or through the government running a budget deficit as if those are two equivalent things. And certainly they give a preference for the government thing because, hey, that's more dependable. We have more control over that. But no, think about it. You're a group of people, you know, in the private sector in your country, and then some outside entity owes your entity a trillion dollars in present market value, uh, you know, of dollar-denominated liabilities to them, assets to you. Other things equal, who would you want to owe you that money? A bunch of foreigners who the only way they can come up with it is to sell goods and services to be able to return those dollars to you or an entity that if it wants to can just print up the pieces of paper and hand them to you, in which case, of course, that's going to cause the you know, prices to rise. Or whereas prices aren't going to go up if the, you know, the foreigners give you the money because they the only way they can come up with those trillion dollars that they owe you is again by producing goods and services that current holders of those dollars which may include you want right so you're going to get that trillion and it's not going to make everything a lot more expensive quoted in dollars whereas if the public sector in your country owes you the money and they come up with it by running the printing press that's not is that's not a that doesn't help you as much as getting the money from people who had to sell goods and services to come up with the dollars, okay? Or if they don't run the printing press, their other option is they can just point guns at you, you know, your domestic private sector collectively, and say, "Give us a trillion dollars, or we're going to start throwing you in cages." And so then you and your neighbors hand over a bunch of dollars, and they say, "Oh, you know that tw trillion dollars we owed you? There you go." Right. So of the various ways you could have net financial assets which would you prefer? And yet the MMT people make it sound like clearly the thing that's in the long run sustainable and you can really bank on is if your private or your public sector is the one that over time owes more and more to you because of its growing dollar denominated liability or, you know, if we're in, in your, the Eurozone, the Euro denominator or whatever. So I, I hope I'm driving home just how incredibly misleading and wrong-headed 
that sectoral balance approach is if the conclusion is, hey, everyone's freaking out about the government running up a big debt, but hey, their red ink is, your, is our black ink. No, that's just incredibly misleading. Okay. Finally, third one we'll talk about. Uh, I've noticed Phil, shoot, I was going to look up, is it Labonte or Labonte? Not sure. Sorry, Phil. Um, of uh, all that remains on Twitter, he's, he's at Phil that remains. Um, good, good, good guy. Like he's on Tim Pool's show a lot now, and he's been on Tom Woods' show. And I do lighthearted trolling, and he doesn't take himself seriously. He gets it. He's got a good sense of humor. All right. So do not construe this as a huge scathing critique of Phil. But I've noticed over time, he keeps repeating this, uh, what is a standard MMT talking point? And then I recently, he did it again and I asked him and he confirmed saying, yeah, I'm not like a fan of the MMT or per se, but I do think on this issue, you know, they're accurately describing how the world works and that can only help us to do that. I'm just trying to do my part to correct this misunderstanding since this is how, you know, our financial system works. Okay. So, and I think, so it's not that I'm so much picking on Phil. I'm just saying this was a recent example. I do think that this is not a helpful way to, to think about things. And I'm just using this just so you know I'm not attacking a straw man. This is a real thing that floats around. Okay, so the context was, ironically, it was Nina Turner who tweeted something. And this is pretty recent. This was just November 22nd that Nina did this, and then Phil responded to her. Um, so Nina Turner being, uh, I think she's a former political official. I think she was at the state level, but she has a lot of very progressive left-wing takes on things, um, especially in terms of like economic justice that a lot of standard right-winger, libertarian, especially ANCAP people do not agree with. All right. So it's ironic on this one where the economically I'm more on Nina's side than I'm going to be on Phil's as we'll see in a second. All right. But here was the exchange. So Nina tweeted out, I want my tax dollars to go to the health. Oh, sorry. I want my tax dollars to go to health care so my family, friends, and neighbors can go to the doctor without going into debt. I do not want my tax dollars buying bombs that kill innocent Palestinians. All right. And then she said some more, but with my screenshot, you know, I can't click the show more, but you, you get the gist of it. She was complaining about how her tax dollars are being used by the government to fund things that she considers to be reprehensible. Rather than, you know, hey, I'm happy to pay my taxes. I just wish it would go to, you know, giving health care for all and whatever. Okay? Not to fund war. Okay? Fair enough, right? So then Phil responds and says, well, Nina, I have good news for you. Your tax dollars don't, quote, pay. So he's got the word pay in quotation marks. Your tax dollars don't pay for anything. Monetary policy doesn't work like that anymore. The government just prints money when it wants to fund things. Your taxes just help control inflation. Okay, so that, um, again, is a, is a very specific MMT point. Uh, for example, what's interesting is, I don't know why, I guess it's because everybody likes to fight. If you say that that's an MMT position in the, in the MMT, because what happens is, when the MMTers talk about, hey, unlike households and even corporations, governments that are monetary sovereigns, so not all governments, but just ones like the United States and um, what, like Great Britain and uh, Japan, you know, ones that have a central bank that issues its own currency and something, a, a condition people often forget, that their central government or their federal government when it issues bonds, it can borrow in its own currency. That's important in order to really be a monetary sovereign in the MMT framework. Okay. Like if, if you're a household, you just start, if I just started issuing uh, Murphy notes and tried to use those as currency, you know, like with my family or something and that some people did like, that would be one thing, but I can't go borrow and buy a bunch of stuff with Murphy note, right? If I want to go borrow in order to go buy things, I, they would be denominated in dollars. And so then that would be the problem that the Murphy note to US dollar exchange rate would plummet if I started printing too many Murphy notes. So that's why 
it's not enough just to issue your own currency. It's got to be that the financial markets globally respect your standing enough that they will lend to you in your currency. So the U.S. government can get holders of U.S. dollars to lend to it in U.S. dollars, and it can finance all of its operations that way. Okay. So anyway, when the MMTers point out that, oh, it's not right to say, hey, can, can the U.S. government afford single payer for health care? Geez, I don't know if we can afford that. I don't know. We're already, you know, we we got multiple wars going on, and you and social security liabilities are coming due. And geez, I I don't know if we can afford a green new deal. And the MMT people say you're using the wrong language. Of course, they can afford it. They can just print money. The question is, will that cause an undue amount or an uh, a um, an intolerably high level of price inflation? They would just say inflation, but they mean price inflation in the Austrian sense. Okay, that's the issue. There's no doubt that the U.S. government can, quote, afford to pay for anything it wants. It's just if it, if it, uh, if it oversteps and prints too much money, then prices are going to rise more than the public is going to tolerate. And so, you know, maybe that will be the downfall of the policy or that will be the downside. But it's not this issue of, oh, we just can't come up with enough dollars because we didn't tax enough or we couldn't, you know, there was a, the bond vigilante struck, shucks. No, they can just run the printing press. They don't even have to physically print anything. They can just do it electronically, right? So that's the MMT position. And so then a lot of times in response to that, somebody who's like scratching his head and just trying to make, you know, keep his sanity says, wait a minute, if it's just like that, then why do they even have taxes anymore? Just have the government print money and buy whatever it's going to buy, and then you know we'll deal with the price inflation. And if they're buying too much stuff, then you know I guess inflation will be too high, and then we'll get mad and we'll vote in new people who don't spend as much, so inflation comes down. But at least we don't have to pay taxes anymore, right? And this one standard MMT response to that, when I say standard, I mean it's in Warren Mosler's Seven Innocent Frauds, you know, which is kind of like his Bible. And it's, you know, early on, it's like page four or something. And it's, it's, a, it's a footnote, but it, you know, it's prominently right up front. And he says in the footnote, like, I know what you're thinking. You're reading this, me, you're st- you know, I'm starting to get into my worldview here. And you're, you're puzzled and you can't move forward with me because you're worried about how come there's taxes. And let me tell you why we still have taxes. As we've seen, we don't need taxes to pay for anything. It's not so the government can afford things or finance expenditures. That's never a problem now that we've left the gold standard. No, the problem is, or, or the, the function of taxes is to regulate aggregate demand. That specifically, if the economy is running too hot, then the government can tax money away from the private sector in order to reduce aggregate demand and, and cool off inflation, or vice versa. If it wants to, it can reduce taxes, and then you know that allows uh, for aggregate demand to be higher if they want to do it that way. Okay. So that's, that's what Phil is is producing here. But for whatever reason, like I say, MMT people, when someone says that get mad and say, no, that's not what we use taxes for. We use taxes to like, uh, try to combat inequality or something. You know, then they'll say if, if inflation is too high, then the government can just stop spending as much. I mean, yes, that's true, but it is also true that one function of taxes in that framework, and it doesn't even matter what Warren Mosler said is that, right? So the people saying this is what the MMT people believe aren't making that up. That's exactly what Warren Mosler said, all right? So anyway, and I'm just bringing that up here because somebody was arguing with Phil saying that's not, or well, with me, because I said, Phil, do you endorse other MMT talking points or something like that? And then he explained and then someone came at me saying, I don't think that sounds like MMT. It just sounds like Phil is cynically, you know, misdescribing their view. So anyway, there's that. Okay. Put all that aside. Let's cut back to it with now after my little excursion there into the weeds. So I think I've done enough just with my tangential discussion there to understand where the MMT people are coming from by saying that and what Phil, where he's coming from by him endorsing that view. So here's why I don't think that's very helpful. Um, 
I guess the, the primary concern that I have is it leads people into thinking that, oh, okay, so if the government wants to buy things and just runs the printing press, and again, it doesn't literally have to print currency. It can just, you know, the, 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 well, <laughs> sorry, folks, I know I'm all over the place. One problem with this view is, strictly speaking, it is not correct. All right. And when, when you, that, that's again the irony in this. If you read Kelton's book, for example, her um, re- recent one uh, with like the, the deficit myth, I think that's what it's called, something like that. I, I did a review of it. I'll link it in the show notes page. Again, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 299. Uh, I'm just jotting a note so I don't forget to link that. Um, you know, they'll say, oh, here's what happened. And she's getting this from Warren Mosler, too. Mosler and Kelton both say they're explaining how it is that, like, the government buys more fighter jets or something. And they'll just say stuff like, oh, the when the Treasury wants to buy something, it just instructs the Fed to credit the accounts of, you know, Lockheed Martin or whatever, Boeing, and da 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 da, da. And that's how it works. And no, that's not true except insofar as it's the same way that, oh, if I want to buy something at Best Buy, I buy a $100 TV, what I do is I instruct my bank to transfer deposits from my account into Best Buy's account. And that's how, and you could say, all right, you can talk like that, but if you don't have enough in your account, Bob, they're not going to listen to you. And likewise, if the Treasury instructs the Fed to transfer reserves from the Treasury's account over to Lockheed Martin's account, and the Treasury doesn't have enough in its account to begin with, the Fed is not going to listen to them. And people say, well, you don't, it's, that's literally what the law is. Okay. And I, I spell that out in my, uh, in my review. Now I'm not putting all my weight on that one little point because yeah, that's just like a statute or something to Congress and they could change that. But my, again, my point is here, the MMT people, MMT people are going around very smugly saying, we're just explaining how the world works. Sorry if you can't handle it. When No, they're not. They say things that are demonstrably false. The world does not work the way they explain. So they're wrong in terms of the letter. And then on top of that, they're wrong in terms of the spirit of it. So it's technically wrong, and it's extremely misleading. And it, you know, it, it fosters bad economic thinking. So there's, there's no redeeming quality whatsoever to the typical MMT observation about something. Okay. So this is another case in point. Um, you know, it's, it's not the case that the government can simply print money either physically or electronically, and then just go give it right to the vendor for whatever it wants to no, right now, legally, if the treasury wants something, it has to have money in its checking account. And if it doesn't have enough, it has to first issue bonds. And the Fed can't even just monetize those bonds directly. The treasury has to issue the bonds into the private sector. And then if the bond ultimately ends up on the Fed's balance sheet, it's because the Fed bought it from the you know, primary dealer or whoever. Okay? So, again, I understand in... At a certain level of abstraction, you can just say, oh, basically the Fed paid for it by, through inflation. Okay. But again, if, if people are quibbling about this and you're coming back and say, well, I'm just explaining how the world really works. No, it doesn't. At a sufficient level of detail, this is just wrong. Okay. Now, you could say, Okay, sure, Bob, it's not right there, but, you know, the spirit of, and again, no, I want to say, I don't think so. I think the spirit, like what this is leading you to think, rather than the old school approach, I think this is less helpful. All right? That, you know, the old way of thinking about it in terms of, well, ultimately, the government doesn't really have any resources of its own, and anything the government buys, ultimately, the taxpayers had to pay for, either directly in that period or, you know, when they're paying off the, the bonds that you know, somebody else lent the money to the government to at the time of the purchase. Da, da, da. I think that is far more helpful economically for people to think about it that way, because then it reminds you anything the government creates, it is siphoning away from the private sector. 
And that is true with or without the gold standard. If the government right now buys a bunch of jets, those resources, the physical resource, you know, the steel and the glass and the rubber and the worker hours that went into it and all that stuff, that didn't just magically come from somewhere, you know, that was redirected from private sector uses. Okay. Whereas Kelton's worldview that unfortunately Phil has endorsed lately might lead you to believe that, oh, we can kind of have free. I'm not saying Phil believes this, but I'm worried his listeners and readers will end up thinking like this, that, oh, unless price inflation is you know really high, then the inflation isn't a big deal. So that's the problem in my view. Okay. And in closing here, I'll just give two quick analogies to kind of show the problem that I mean, right? So I could truthfully say that, uh, oh, hey, the, um, you know, like if someone's complaining and saying, oh, my local police force, they, uh, I don't like the fact that my taxes paid for the police to, you know, rough up those people that I read about in the paper last week. You know, that, that's my property taxes paying the police and they're doing things I don't agree with. And then what if someone came along and said, well, no, actually that's not true. That, um, the police actually, they have checking accounts. And so your taxes don't directly go to paying, you know, into the checking accounts of the police officers. No, the police, you know, compensation board or whatever, the police fund, da, 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 the government, the, you know, the, the mayor has, you know, the, the city has its funding and da, da, da. And there's various checking accounts tied to the city and they do this and that. And so the police directly get paid from the government. And there's just checking accounts that get drained down and your taxes just kind of replenish those accounts. That's really what's going on. So the government funds the police itself, your, your local government, and then all your taxes do is replenish the government's checking account balances. So that's what happens. So don't worry, you're not actually funding the police, right? You can see how to, to throw in those details isn't really changing the essence and it's just kind of confusing things, even though technically what I said, you know, could arguably be more accurate than someone who thinks their taxes directly go into the personal checking account of a given police officer. Okay, another analogy. Somebody might say like, oh, why does that guy go to work? He said, oh, he goes to work to put food on the table for his family. And then someone could say, well, no, not really. Because even if he didn't have an income, ultimately, if his kids are about to starve, he's going to go full Jean Valjean and go you know, steal a loaf of bread and feed his family that way. So really, when you think about it, the reason the guy works is to avoid the police hunting after him. He doesn't want to be a criminal. He doesn't actually work to put food on the table because whether or not he works, the food's going to get on the table. Really, the function of him working is to postpone or to keep at bay this other bad thing that could happen, namely the police come looking for him. Okay, so I think if you see in both of those cases, in, in the earlier one too, when I say the function of your taxes is to replenish the city's checking account balances, you can just say because the city really doesn't like it when its checking account balances get low. That, that's, a, that's a scenario it wants to avoid. Okay, so likewise, in Phil's framework here, and Stephanie Kelton's and whatever, Warren Mosler's, you say, oh, it's not that your taxes buy fighter jets and fund, you know, the wars against the Palestinians and blah, blah, blah. No, the government is going to fund that money through inflation or fund those projects through inflation. And now if they didn't collect taxes, there'd be really high price inflation. And so to avoid that, they tax people. So really what your taxes do is not fund, you know, the efforts against the Palestinian people. Really, your taxes just keep inflate, price inflation low. Okay, so you get, you see what I'm doing there? If you get why talking about the police getting funded through taxes, no, really, it's just the checking account, the level of the checking account that the city holds. You know, that's doing the same work there as the level of price inflation is doing you know, in Kelton's view or, or Moser's view or in Phil's view. Okay. So, you know, you, I, I think we can all agree. It would be very misleading to say for people, you know, local governments, your property taxes don't fund schools and don't fund the police. Um, all your funds do is replenish their checking account balances of those organizations. I think you can see like, okay, but if you want to make that this sure, but that doesn't really affect the essence of what I'm saying. And likewise, how is the government funding, you know, its efforts to arm the Israelis or whatever that is that Nina was complaining about 
it's because we work and generate funds and then pay taxes in them. If everybody stopped working, then price inflation would go through the ceiling because ultimately the way those bombs are getting built and whatever they get shipped over the ocean is because people go to factories and make them. It's not because the Fed creates money. If there was nobody making the bombs, it doesn't matter how much money the Fed makes. Okay, well, that's a good spot to wrap it up. Again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 299 and I'll for the links for all this stuff. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>